Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, and welcome back to NucleCast. I, of course, am your host, Adam Lowther. And today, we have two of the most impressive guests that I have ever had on this show and that I have personally admired uh, for, for years. They don't know this, but I have admired their careers and watched and, uh, you know, wished to be like them for four years. And that is... That is uh, no joke, because we have today Drs. Michael Griffin and Lisa Porter, who are currently the co-founders and co-presidents of Logic, which is a company that provides high-end management, scientific, and technical consulting services. Now, you may remember Dr. Griffin from his previous stints as the Uh, He was the head of NASA, the administrator of NASA. He's been a senior leader in the Department of Defense. He was the King McDonald professor at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, which is where all the rocket scientists go. Uh, He, of course, has a PhD in aerospace engineering. He's received many, many awards. And from my own limited time knowing him, he's an all-around good guy. Now, Lisa, of course, is uh, she is incredibly impressive herself. She has a uh, PhD in applied physics from Stanford. I've heard that's a fairly decent school. She has been the executive vice president at NQTEL, uh, which if you know NQTEL, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's no slouch of an organization. She's been the president of Teledyne Scientific and Imaging. She was the first director of IARPA, which is DARPA, but for the Intel community. And she herself has had an impressive career. So we have two great guests today. And we're going to talk about that new system that there's a lot to discuss, and there's a lot of myths, a lot of misnomers, but we're going to clear it all up today. We're going to talk about hypersonics. And so with that, I want to welcome Mike and Lisa into the show. Uh, Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So we're going to talk hypersonics today. And the first thing I'd like both of you to do is to just lay out for the audience, what are hypersonics? How do they work? What's the potential for them, and how are they likely to be used in war? Well, I guess to start, uh, when we uh, talk about hypersonic uh, flying objects, it's, it's anything flying faster than about five times the speed of sound. Um, so for your audience, that would be anything faster than about 1700 meters per second, or if you prefer miles per hour, you know, rounding it around 3,800 miles per hour. So quite fast. And that's the lower end and the upper end of the range might be Mach 20, 20 times the speed of sound. 
So, you know, up to 16, 17,000 miles per hour, uh, just under just under orbital speed at the high end. Um, that's relevant because as we've seen on the news, we have President Putin of Russia bragging about his Mach 20 avant-garde nuclear hypersonic weapons delivery system. So it's a wide range from Mach 5 to Mach 20. Um, the importance of hypersonics is in, uh, in, in the projection, though, we would say of, of conventional strike power over long ranges and with prompt delivery. Uh, we, in the event that a future conflict starts, especially in the Western Pacific, the ranges of interest are so much longer than those we've had to deal with um, during the Cold War when we were looking mostly towards Europe. Mm -hmm. The ranges are long, uh, the number of US bases are few, and we anticipate having to project power over much greater distances than in the past, and we want to do it quickly, um, which takes us to the importance of hypersonics, because if you're far away and you want to do it quickly, you need to fly fast. So that's the basics. And if we want to think about materials, designs, uh, how they fly, uh, how they're launched, what do people need to understand about them? Well, the primary thing is that when you fly real fast and, and any portion of that flight is in the atmosphere, unlike the flight of intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is almost all of it in space, when you fly real fast within the atmosphere, you get uh, atmospheric heating. The friction of the air against the vehicle moving through the atmosphere generates tremendous heat. Um, just as a point of reference for the geeks among us, the top speed ever set by an airplane with a person in it was an X-15 flight that went to Mach 6.7, so a little bit into the hypersonic range. Uh, I think they didn't use that particular airplane again. It survived, but um, it would have required quite a lot of refurbishment before it could have been used again. And they had sprayed extra insulation on it before they flew. So uh, before and after pictures are intriguing. Um, you asked earlier about, you know, maybe not in so many words, but about the history of hypersonic stuff. The actual first hypersonic missile was the German V2 during World War II which uh, would, uh, was right at Mach 5 at, at the upper end of its speed range. So these things have been around for a while. Now, for most of us, we have a, a sense of the fact that hypersonics are maneuverable is what, and that they don't fly a ballistic trajectory is what makes them potentially so you know, distinct and so dangerous and so unpredictable. Can you speak about that a little? Well, we can. Lisa, do you want me to continue or would you like to chime in? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll chime in if you if uh, you forget to say something. <laughs> okay. Well, that happens a lot, so don't hesitate. I, I won't. Um, so for any vehicle flying within the atmosphere, whether it's a hypersonic weapon or an airplane or anything else, the flight within the atmosphere allows you with the use of, of control fins um, to change your trajectory. 
And it's much easier to do that within the atmosphere than it is in space. You have just a, a much wider latitude to make those course adjustments. So part of the threat, and it's a very real part of a hypersonic weapon is that even if you detect it on radar, which is more difficult because it flies lower, but even if you detect it on radar, your detection of it does not mean that you know where it's going to go. When we detect a ballistic missile in flight after, after burnout, and we have assets in space that can detect and track these things within moments after launch, after an ICBM burns out, you pretty much know where it is going within a very small uncertainty right. basket. With a hypersonic missile uh, launched from, say, North Korea, just to pick one, you really won't know if the target is Alaska or, or Hawaii or Midway or whatever. It, it, it has a very wide range from the launch point of potential targets, which of course makes countering it quite difficult. So, so Mike, folks... I would add to that, you know, this is part of, I think what you and I've tried to make sure people understand is there's a continuum. So the, the MARV, the ballistic MARV, I think is the what some would argue historically was sort of the first instantiation of a hypersonic in the sense of that maneuverable trajectory at the end point. That's exactly right. Thanks for raising that because back in the early and mid 1980s, the United States fielded, um, if I recall correctly, uh, over 280 Pershing II uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles, you know, having about 1,100 or so nautical miles range, um, at least tested that far out, uh, uh, with. Uh, as Lisa just said, a maneuvering re-entry vehicle on the front end that um, A, allowed it to go after um, potential moving targets should that be required, and maybe more importantly, um, uh, allowed it to evade defenses that the then Soviet Union might have put against it. Uh, because it could conduct very high G maneuvers, 15 and 20 G maneuvers at the at, and during terminal flight. Now, because most of its trajectory was outside the atmosphere, um, it could only affect those maneuvers in what we call the end game. So it had less range, it had, it had less volume that it could go to than a vehicle which flies all the way through the atmosphere, but it still had considerable maneuverability. And so, you know, as Lisa was just saying, that was. 40 years ago now. Uh, so, so again, even maneuverable hypersonic rounds have been around for a while. And this was part of what made the Pershing so uh, scary for the Russians. Well, yeah, that's what led to the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF, uh, because it, it put notice on Russia that if they invaded Eastern Europe, uh, there would be a nuclear exchange and they wouldn't come out of it well. Now, as we look to the present and we think about where your major players are, the United States, Russia, China, perhaps North Korea or Iran, where are each of these nations in their development of hypersonic vehicles? Well, in, in terms of fundamental research, 
I, I still believe the United States is, is behind no one. Uh, I, would, I would argue that China knows what we know, um, but you know, leaving, leaving aside small marginal differences, I, I think in terms of fundamental understanding, the United States is, is up there with anyone. Uh, and the same could be said of Russia. I, I think there's a general parity of scientific and technical understanding of, of, about hypersonics. Where China and also Russia are currently ahead of us is in the instantiation of that knowledge in fielded weaponry. And, um, the, the Chinese have in play today uh, deployed systems that with uh, they have various designations, but with the DF-26 uh, can reach Guam and east of Guam from well inside the Chinese mainland. Uh, with the DF-21, uh, about a thousand mile range weapon, uh, they can reach our carrier forces pretty much anywhere inside or in, uh, anywhere to the west of Guam. Uh, from islands that they have built up and control in the Paracels and the Spratleys. And, you know, these island building campaigns by, by China have made national news. So we won't go into a bunch of those details, but they have many launch points from which they can threaten our, our fleet uh, with these missiles. And in fact, they have the name carrier killers. Uh, you can look it up on the web. Uh, the DF-17 is a newer longer range, about 1,300 miles carrier killer that in uh, the context we were just talking about with highly maneuverable vehicles is what we call a hypersonic glide vehicle. It spends more of its time in the atmosphere and is more highly maneuverable and thus again, more difficult to defend against. And also you don't really know where the target is until it might be too late to, to deal with it. So the Chinese have an instantiated um, fleet, I'll say, of hypersonic weaponry, uh, whose, whose only point is to keep the United States out of the Western Pacific. Right. And for the Russians, which are, you know, causing a lot of trouble now, the big issue is and the concern of hypersonic nuclear armed hypersonic weapons. How do you see hypersonics playing into nuclear deterrence and potential nuclear weapons use? Lisa, do you want to take a try at this or you want me to keep going? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I can take a try at it. Um, so <clears throat> it's, I think it's important to remember that, that the word hypersonic in this case is a little bit of a red herring because ICBMs are also hypersonic. The Russians right. and the... Americans have had ICBMs for a long time. Um, when the Russians first started, you know, thumping their chest uh, several years ago now, right, about hypersonics and nuclear weapons, there were people who were correctly noting, well, we already have those things, right? So in part, it's, it's uh, you have to sort of de deconflict what is the actual messaging um, versus what is the reality of, of, have they got something new and different? Uh, the avant-garde is, of course, a, a very 
impressive hypersonic delivery mechanism for a nuclear weapon, but there's um, nothing new in terms of the idea of having a long range nuclear weapon. I, I think the more important point is how, how does one uh, think about conventional prompt strike capability? Uh, the avant-garde without a nuclear weapon becomes a very impressive conventional strike capability. And, and that's the thing that I think people are forgetting to think about. Um, forget about the nuke for a moment. How could the avant-garde be deployed in a conventional strike modality? Um, and that's, that's the question that I think needs to be asked. Um, so is it, is what makes it scary from, you know, for the, you know, the nuclear, the nuclear deterrence folks, you know, and I sit in that world mm -hmm. and what it seems to, the big issue seems to be the challenge that maneuverability and the difficulty of tracking. And, you know, if you've spent any time in the missile warning center, uh, at Cheyenne Mountain, you know, you, you see these every time uh, uh, we see a launch, you know, there's tracks that point where it's going and it sort of updates tracks and you can see that. Whereas with hypersonic vehicles, you know, they could be launched from, from an, you know, from an ICBM, they can be launched from an aircraft, they, you know, there's different ways, there's ways to obscure it, the difficulty in you know, space-based tracking. And, and so it seems to sort of throw a wrench into the way we do things and the way Absolutely. we understand and dual phenomenology. So is that, that's why, yeah. So is that concern overwrought? Should we not be concerned or are we, you know, sort of overestimating? Oh, we, should we should be concerned. Absolutely. The, the points you're raising about the uncertainty that hypersonics provides um, which if you're on the offense, it's great. And if you're on the defense, it's not good, right? And so when we talk about hypersonics, we should be thinking about employing them to our best advantage, but we also need to be thinking about the defense capabilities we need as a result of the fact that our peer adversaries also have those capabilities. Uh, so it's not just look at one side of the, of the coin, right? Um, but yes, that is the, that's the, the power of hypersonics is it adds more confusion to the battle space, which is intentional. Um, and to Mike's point in the Western Pacific, it, it gives China an advantage because, you know, in, in the absence of, of certainty, one is on one's back heels or on, on one's heels, I guess is the expression. Right. Um, and in terms of trying to, to understand intent and, and so forth. Yeah. And, and you for protecting your, your assets. Yeah. But you think the bigger problem is the, the conventional challenge and how might we have the, the conventional capability to address? Yeah, and, and I'll let Mike riff on this because he's very eloquent on it. I'll, I'll just say the conventional challenge is very important because in the absence of conventional capability, and Mike says this very nicely, you have a, a binary situation. You very quickly have to escalate to nuclear. Um, because you don't have options that are strong and powerful at the conventional level. So, and we're seeing that play out right in the, in the Ukraine conflict right now, where Russia immediately started escalating to nuclear, you know, pontification at least to, to say, to put it minimally. Um, and we don't, that's not very effective actually, in terms of if you're a decision maker, you don't want to just have two options in your toolbox. Um, you know, I have a stick of dynamite or a hammer. That's not really 
<laughs> I need some other I need some other tools here. So um, so that that's the point is the convention you want to strengthen your conventional capabilities so that you have far more flexibility in deterrence, which of course the US is, really doesn't ever want to go to war. The whole point is to deter war. You want your adversary to think, geez, I don't even want to start anything here because their conventional presence is so strong that they won't be able to overmatch me in the theater. Um, and you don't even have to think about nuclear. And so in a sense, it's always there, but you'd, you'd rather not have to escalate to it. So Mike, I, I don't know if I said that as well as you would have said it, but I took a stab at it. Well, I mean, I can say it different. I don't know that I can say it better. Um, the, the, um, let's look at it from China's point of view. Um, and, and, you know, stay out of the current news in, in Russia, although Lisa's examples there are beyond relevant and, and it makes us wish that we had maybe done our investment a few years earlier, right? Um, but let's look at it from China's point of view. Um, your announced goal as President Xi is to displace the United States as the global superpower. I mean, he says it all the time. We don't, we don't have to make that up or infer it. Uh, he, he may not mean what he says, but we'd probably be better advised to think that he does because he says it all the time. Okay, well, you're China and in a phrase I, Lisa has used a number of times, you don't want to destroy the world, you want to control it. So he doesn't want to go nuclear. Um, he's prepared to if, if we start it, but the United States is never going to initiate a nuclear conflict. So he's got his deterrence and we have ours. So how does he gain control? Well, Z clearly seeks and states his goal to dominate Asia. He believes and says so that larger countries um, should control smaller countries, what, what they do. He want in, in order to effect that goal of controlling Asia, he has to keep the United States out of the Western Pacific because we have sworn for decades to uh, protect the right of passage in the high seas, to protect democracies, to, um, to maintain a, a rough balance of world order. We have, we have said that and done that since 1945. So Xi, and other prior Chinese leaders have, have sought, will seek, will continue to seek to prevent us from attaining that goal. So how can you do that? Well, the way that the United States projects power, uh, since all the battleships got sunk at the start of World War II, the United States went to its fallback position, uh, and it was a fallback position of carriers and submarines, which were neglected part of the Navy until all the battleships were taken out of play. We liked what came out of that, although submarine losses in the Pacific were huge, but we liked how it came out. And so for the last 80 years almost, uh, we have projected power uh, by means of nuclear submarines, more lately armed with some conventional weapons, tomahawks and things like that, and critically aircraft carriers and airplanes. But aircraft carriers uh, hosting airplanes have a certain range. Um, beyond that range, they're just not useful. So China has, over the last 20 years, crafted weapons which can keep those carriers, as I 
said earlier, east of Guam. Those are real numbers. They're not hypothetical. They're in play today. Right. Thus nullifying, from the Chinese point of view, the traditional method, now traditional meaning since 1945, the traditional method by which the United States projects power. We send a carrier close to somebody's shore, and if we say there's going to be a no-fly zone, well, then there's a no-fly zone because no one can defeat it. If can't get the carriers close to the Chinese mainland, mainland or anywhere in the Western Pacific that they don't want us to go, and I would invite you to sketch out some 2,500-mile range rings from the Spratleys and the Paracels and, and many points on the Chinese mainland, the Western Pacific then becomes theirs, and the United States cannot keep its promises to defend besieged nations. We no longer can keep the peace. We can no longer guarantee the right of passage on the high seas. I would submit to you that from a policy perspective, uh, no pun intended, that is a sea change in the world order. That, that is an automatic displacement of the United States from its role as the preeminent superpower following the Cold War. And it's not an accident that China has pursued exactly that strategy, because by that means, which is conventional, no nuclear strike is involved. They have upset the world order in their favor. That is not to the advantage of the United States, nor to any Western democracy. And we should seek to counter it. Now, the thing we didn't mention earlier about hypersonics, which really needs to be brought forward, is the precision of the strike. This is unrelated to flying fast, but in collateral developments um, begun in the early 1980s by Bill Perry when he was Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering and DDR&E. Um, the United States developed a number of different means by which very high precision guidance can be attained. We saw this during the first Gulf War in the early 90s with camera shots of uh, Tomahawk missiles flying down ventilation pipes and things like that, which previously never accomplished. So with conventional prompt hypersonic precision strike, uh, we and our adversaries have the capability to put, to put high explosives and high kinetic energy warheads within a few feet of where we want them to go. That's the complete opposite of the kinds of carpet bombing we're seeing in the Ukraine today, and, and which was a feature of World War II. Uh, and it's completely opposite to the indiscriminate destruction that, that a nuclear weapon creates. Um, in, a, in a conflict where hypersonic weapons are in play, uh, the leaders who are in charge of that effort uh, can be targeted. That's a significant thing. I've talked too long, but I wanted to try to put the picture frame around what, what is different today and to do so from the Chinese perspective and, and how one goes about becoming the world superpower by backing down the United States. And Mike, to offer then from the U.S. perspective, you know, again, people forget that the United States has a set of code and ethics that represents what it, what it is as a country. And, and that extends even to how we engage in conflict and war. Um, and 
people are commenting upon the current conflict, projecting their own perspectives onto that conflict. So claims that Russia is not winning, for example, don't take into account what Russian defines as winning. Um, the fact that they're being indiscriminate in their use of, of ordinance is something we find appalling. It's not something they find appalling, right? It's, it's, and why do I raise this? Because the whole point of being able to be on par or hopefully be it stronger against China in terms of long range conventional strike is to deter war. We want China to understand that they actually don't control the Western Pacific, right? And we're not there now, but we need to get to a point very quickly where we have that hypersonic uh, long range conventional prompt capability with my, to Mike's point with high precision. Um, our, we don't view the 1.4 billion Chinese as the enemy. We view, we view the CCP as someone who has come out at, and stated they are the enemy of us, right? So, so what you want, I think, in, in terms of providing capability, when you think about hypersonics, is you want the decision makers to have maximum flexibility and options that can be as commensurate with the values that the United States holds dear as possible when trying to deter conflict uh, with foreign adversaries, particularly those who are on peer with us. And, and that's why hypersonics become such an important part of the overarching deterrence strategy for the United States. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So if we're looking at, so from what I understand, as I've listened, the key is we need long range conventional hypersonics to deter the Chinese primarily, but also to deter the Russians, and we're not there yet. And so if you were to advise President Biden or a future president uh, in regards to what they should do about hypersonics, what, what would you tell them? So, so I, would, I would tell them, look, you've already got the tools that you need. Mike mentioned earlier that in terms of understanding how to make hypersonics, we are probably even ahead, but certainly not behind. Our, our competitors. Um, where we're behind is actually our, our inventory and our deployment. And so we've got to ramp up production. This is completely doable. And in fact, this is what the United States does very well when it puts its mind to something. Just think about the COVID vaccine situation and how we crushed it once we had a vaccine. Uh, so we need to open up uh, U.S. ability, frankly, to, to greatly increase production and, and have instead of onesie twosie types of experiments to demonstrate we understand hypersonics and we could, we could do it, we got we to gotta have it as part of our inventory so that, so that our adversaries know that we're serious and we really have that capability deployed. And, and that's completely doable. Uh, so it's really about just the commitment, the will, and the sort of the uh, permission, if you will, to just go do it. Uh, to have that leadership say that let's go build up that capability. That, that would be my uh, advice to the, to the current leadership. Mike, I don't know if you would agree, but I'll turn it over to you. Well, you do know that I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to speak for you, but. No, you, you get to do that anytime. We're partners. Um, but so, so everything you said is correct from my point of view. And I would, I would add um, 
the thought that our national leadership needs to ask themselves the question, what actually does China regard as a threat to them? And so let me put it in numerical terms. Again, the traditional US method of projecting power is through aircraft carriers. So everybody's focused on how to protect aircraft carriers. I get that. But let's do some arithmetic. We have, have about a dozen aircraft carriers. And so one more doesn't fundamentally change what we do. But um, one more costs $15 billion. Round numbers, very close round numbers. Um, let's say that the cost of a long range hypersonic weapon is at the upper end of what I think is reasonable before we start doing a GAO investigation. So let me peg that at $50 million for a new round produced in quantity. And bear in mind before somebody says that Mike thinks that's acceptable, I don't think it's acceptable. I'm rounding up to make a point. So for $50 million, I can buy 300 hypersonic rounds for the cost of one aircraft carrier. So unless I dropped a decimal point in my head, but I think that's right. So I would ask anybody to consider what the Chinese feel, what the Chinese Communist Party feels, because as Lisa said, our enemy is not the 1.4 billion Chinese people. I, I like all the Chinese people that I know, <laughs> but what is the Chinese Communist Party more afraid of? 300 long range precision strike weapons that can blow you know, a 40 foot deep, 100 foot diameter hole in the ground or one more aircraft carrier. That they can blow up. That they can blow up. Oh, by, oh, by the way, that they can blow up. Otherwise known as a target. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you for that. So if you're the Chinese Communist Party, which do you think is scarier? 300 precision strike weapons against which you have no defense or one more aircraft carrier that you can blow up? <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. I, I know which one I would pick. All right. So the United States has plenty of money. You know, we're the world's richest country, certainly per capita. Um, we have way more than $15 billion in our defense budget. We have way more than 15 billion just for constructing new, new stuff for the Navy. So if you're the nation's leadership, which choice are you gonna make? Well, let me play devil's advocate. We're, you know, we're closing in on the end of the show and I've heard you know, within, the armor, within the disarmament community, the argument that uh, hypersonic weapons are destabilizing. <laughs> they, add a, they add a new element into the, you know, to arms racing. And that rather than having to worry about, you know, preventing a new nuclear arms race, we're now going to kick off a hypersonics arms race that could be even more uncertain than the nuclear arms race we've had and that we're trying to prevent now. And so therefore, we should not be developing these hypersonics. They're unnecessary, even if the Russians or the Chinese have them. They're unnecessary for us to have them. And therefore, let's promote stability and stick with the systems we have. 
that, that's that's an argument that there are those out there making. How would you respond? You want to go first, Lisa? Yeah, go ahead, Mike. You go first. You really, really want me to do this? this is... <laughs> well, I've been talking. You go ahead. You, you, you say something. I'll say something afterwards. All right. Um, your argument about the destabilizing effects of a new arms race are quite correct. And the Chinese and the Russians noticed that as well. <laughs> and so they already started down that path. So if there was any destabilization to be done by introducing a new capability, okay, they already did it. And at best we're responding. And if the United States is gonna respond, I, now I'll speak for Lisa. I know that both of our view is the United States needs to see their hand and raise them one. We, we need to overmatch their capability, but they started it. The new capability is again, long range, prompt precision strike. Those different adjectives don't go in the same sentence for any other weapon we have. Long range, precision, prompt strike. Conventional. Conventional. Right. We're talking conventional. We're, we've put nuclear off the table, but thanks for reminding me. So they went down that path. And our choice is, do we want to compete or do we want to cede that ground to them? And our answer would be, well, we should compete. And then to up level the point, you could make that argument about any technology, right? So do these same people think that cyber security, you know, uh, sorry, cyber uh, attacks are something that are destabilizing? Well, hell yeah. What about machine learning applications and autonomy and UAVs? Yeah, all this stuff is, quote, destabilizing. In the tech world, we call that disruption. And the and there are winners and losers in disruption, and the, and the losers are the ones who maintain the status quo. It's a very provable point with lots and lots of data. So in order to be, it, our goal is to be to ensure that our values and our way of life sustain, right? With less than 5% of the world's population, you have to think carefully about how do you actually, you should be pretty much in awe that we've been able to do that for decades. When you look at just in terms of a population perspective, our outsized impact on the globe is due largely to the way that we live our lives and the values that we hold. And, and that's fundamentally driven in part by our embracing of disruption across the board, whether we're talking about military technology or other types of capability. Um, and, and that in itself, I would argue, is a stabilizing force when it comes to our way of life. So we have to always maintain our ability to be out in front. And that's the most stabilizing thing to our way of life that I can think of is to continue to be out in front and be the one that others are looking at to say, oh, wait, we need some of that. And so the Chinese and the Russians, especially the Chinese, I would argue, who have been very good about studying us, really understand, I think, that. And that's why they, they took the lead when they could in hypersonics and they started running fast with it. And we now find ourselves in a position where we have to, quote, catch up. Uh, but it's completely doable. It is absolutely doable for us to catch up. It is, just, it is just simply a question of will. This is not new science or engineering we have to invent. And in fact, I would argue again, that when it comes to the ability to industrialize and produce, this country reigns supreme, if it wants to. And with that, I will give you the last word. And we're out of time, but I want to thank our guests, Mike Griffin and Lisa Porter, for joining us. It was a great discussion on Nuclecast about the role and impact 
of hypersonic weapons. And once again, uh, thanks for joining us. And thank you to the listeners as well.